0: I want to add my welcome to you all today. And uh, for all these unfamiliar faces that we see every week, I want to introduce myself as well. My name is Greg Dernberger. I'm one of the elders, senior pastor of Emmaus Road Church. And I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles or your electronic devices to uh, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. And we are going to be giving our attention to Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. If, if you could share in the accomplishments of one famous individual, who would it be? I've uh, just finished reading this massive biography of Winston Churchill. I've always been a fan of his and British politician, you know, served the United Kingdom uh, with remarkable courage and resolve during World War II. What would it have been like to, to be him, to accomplish what he accomplished? Think about that. I've always been a big fan of track and field and I like baseball as a fan. What would it have been like to run and win Olympic medals like somebody like Carl Lewis. <laughs> Half of you don't even know who Carl Lewis is, but in my day, that was, a, that was a big name. Or pitch like Greg Maddox, you know, to accomplish what he accomplished. There was a time when I was fascinated by astronauts, and so I, I, I would imagine, what would it have been like to be Neil Armstrong and stake a claim to be the first man on the moon? It stirs a little bit of adrenaline. Or what about the heroes of the faith? What would it be like to have shared, to share in the accomplishment, the achievement of a Hudson Taylor who just broke into inland China, or Billy Graham and have preached to thousands and thousands? John Stott, there's another one whose accomplishments as a a preacher I, I, I could enjoy sharing, Um, he writes, the great theme of Romans chapter 6 is that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is not only historical facts, they're not only historical facts and significant doctrines, but they are personal experiences of the Christian believer." every Christian believer. They are events in which we ourselves have come to share. Now that should just kind of blow our minds. In what sense do we share these achievements? In what sense do Christian believers like you and me share in the accomplishment, what Jesus has Done, and to what end? Well, according to Paul in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, all Christians are united to Jesus in His death and resurrection. Which means, it is both logically and experientially inconceivable that we should go on living in sin. And sharing in that achievement, sharing in the achievement of Jesus' death and resurrection is something that, oh man, it just f- far surpasses you know, defeating Nazis or winning gold medals or walking on the moon or winning a World Series or, dare I say, penetrating the hardest-to-reach people groups and preaching Christ to thousands. Overcoming habitual sin patterns in the life of a true believer, well, that's what Paul is concerned about in Romans chapter 6. So I want to invite you, if you're physically able and as an expression of regard for God's Word, please stand with me and follow along carefully, carefully to these verses, Romans chapter 6. Verses 1 through 14. Here's what Paul writes. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that... We would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. Therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will Have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law. But under grace. This is God's life giving. Hope engendering word. Let's pray together. Oh the remarkable, astonishing things that are communicated to us in this text, O Lord. I pray that you would so build up and so encourage discouraged believers who find themselves losing the battle with habitual sins, Day in and day out. I pray that they would be. You'd take them by the hand of your Holy Spirit and lift them up today. And Lord, for those believers who have made peace with sin in their minds, creating all kinds of theological constructs that allow them then to justify and even Revel in sinning, I pray that you would come by your Holy Spirit and slice through that fog, O Lord. And deliver us all from ongoing, habitual patterns of sinning that would be dishonoring to you and a denial of this truth that we have been joined to Jesus Christ. We pray for an outpouring of your Spirit and an intensifying of your sanctifying work in every soul, every soul that trusts you. Pray that would happen for your glory, God, for our deliverance, for our, in, for our joy in Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Please be seated. What shall we say then? Then. Then. It's like a therefore, right? And, and you've got to see what it's there for. So therefore. In light of all that Paul had, has said in Romans chapter 4 and 5, what do we say? What do we do? More specifically, once we understand that our sin and our guilt guilt, and our condemnation has all been imputed to Christ, and that Christ's perfect life of obedience, righteousness, has been imputed to us, and God now counts us holy, blameless, above reproach. How then should we think? How, what, what is our response our appropriate response going to be to ongoing habitual sin patterns in our lives. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. <laughs> yes. And, and God sees me as if I'd never sinned and He sees me as if I'd always obeyed. But I still sin. Now what? What then? And for some, that what then or that now what, it means it means doubt, it means fear. Man, I'm still sinning. Am am I really saved? And for others, that what then or that now what is like, man, it's like passing your driver's test. You know, it is a license to get out on the road. Just do whatever you very well please. God accepts me just as I am. God loves me unconditionally. He saves me by His grace. Apart from any merit of my own, His forgiveness is guaranteed. Therefore, continuing sin and sin patterns in my life. This is just another occasion for for me to experience more of God's grace and kindness and goodness. Wow! Wow! Thank you, Lord. I can just keep right on sinning. (laughs) What should we say then to that? How should we respond to, to logic like this? Is really the outcome of our right standing with God that we just kind of merely lighten up in our obedience to the Lord? He's cutting us an awful lot of slack. Let's live in the goodness of all that slack. Is the doctrine of justification, namely, just as if I'd never sinned, just as if I'd always obeyed, does that mean or is it meant to promote carelessness when it comes to ongoing sin in the life of a believer? According to Romans chapter 6, verse 2, the answer is an emphatic, by no means. By no means. God forbid. Absolutely not. And why not? Why not? Well, Paul answers that why not with a question. Look again at the rest of verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So so here's the logic. Since you've already died to sin, you can't keep on living in it, right? What does that mean? You've already died. You're dead. (laughs) It's a shocking word. In what sense have we died? And in what sense is anyone this side of eternity beyond the capacity for sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning? Well, let's start with the we. As in, we died to sin. Who is that? And the who, the we are or is, they're Christians. The we are Christians and we know that because verse 3 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Now baptism is what you experience when you become a Christian. Baptism is an expression of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We get that from Mark chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, where it says, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judah was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. We get it from Acts chapter 2, verse 38, where Peter said to them, Repent, repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So baptism, for us, as we understand it, involves confessing your sins. It involves repenting of your sins. It involves calling on Jesus to wash away your sins. We get this from Acts 22.16 Why do you delay? Arise and be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on His name. Calling on His name and baptism go hand in hand. And so in Romans 6.2, we believe that Paul is referring to believers, that is, those who have admitted their sins, those who have turned from their sins, those who have trusted Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, calling on His name. Romans 6.2 How can we, how can we baptized believers who died to sin still live in it? So that's the we. And then in what sense have we, <laughs> these Baptized believers in Christ died. How have we died to sin? Look at verses 4 and 5. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been, this is so key now, listen carefully, If we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. So so we have died to sin in the sense that for all true believers in Christ, there, there is a union with Christ. We are united to Jesus in such a way that what happened to Christ is counted by God as happening to us. Last week we talked about the doctrine of imputation. Now we're talking about the doctrine of union with Christ. So on account of our union with Christ, union with His Christ in his death, which baptism portrays, it's our death. His burial, which baptism portrays, is our burial. His resurrection, which baptism portrays, is our resurrection. What Jesus accomplished is counted by God as our accomplishment. Look at verses 3-6 through six again. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been United with Him in His death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self, and, and, and old self, that's the, that's the old me, the, the old me that was rebellious against God, defiant towards God's laws, blind to the glory of God, just dead to any. Affection, desire, love, humility, anything before God, resisted to His wisdom, unbelieving towards His promises, that old self, that old self was crucified with Him. That's just another way of saying we died with Him. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So, loved ones, it's it's by virtue of our union with Christ, we died to sin as Christ died to sin. That means that in God's eyes, we are as free from sin from sin's penalty, as if we had died on the cross ourselves. So here we are. We're flawed. We're sinful. But united to Christ, united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, we are seen by God as if we had never sinned and as if we had always obeyed. Joined to Jesus. It's like marriage. Uh, Marriage is such such a helpful and attractive analogy, I believe. Because in marriage, two people come together to form a new entity, a union. They retain their individual identities while merging in a way that's unique. It's mysterious. woman takes the name of her husband, showing her submission to him. husband assumes responsibility for his wife's support and protection. They hold all their assets and liabilities in common. They wear a ring. It's symbolic evidence of their special relationship. And so it is when we are wed to Jesus Christ. Though we retain our own personalities, our natures are dramatically changed as we become partakers of Jesus. We're no longer the same people we were. United to Christ. We belong to Christ. Having taken His name. We've identified ourselves with Him. Desiring to be known as His. No matter the cost. We bring all of our assets. We bring all of our liabilities into the relationship. And so does He. I'm not sure it's much of a mystery as to who got the better end of this deal. But He gets our sin and we get His righteousness. Martin Luther Uh, describes it like this. When we trust Christ, our faith unites the soul to Jesus just as a bride is united to her bridegroom. Just as a husband who marries a wife assumes her debts and the wife in turn now shares in his wealth, so our sin and death fall on Jesus and his righteousness and glory are given to us. And therefore, by the wedding ring of faith, the soul that trusts Christ is free from all sins, secure against death and hell, and given eternal righteousness, life, and salvation. That is a gift. Amen? It is a gift to be joined to Jesus by grace through faith into His perfect life, into His sin-atoning death, into His powerful rising, into His glorious reign. So what do we say then? What is, what is the purpose of such a union with Christ? What is the purpose of a believer's union with Christ? With Christ, what does a believer, believer's union with Christ have to do with day-to-day ongoing sinning? Look again at verse four, "We were buried, therefore, with him, by baptism, into death." In order that... See, this is the purpose is coming. Just wait for it. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, here it is, we too might walk in newness of life. The the purpose of, of a believer's union with Christ is that we now joined to Jesus, might walk in the newness of life. His life. We walk in the newness of His life. Look again at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that, here's the purpose, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So the purpose of a believer's union with Christ is that we would be set free from enslavement to sinning so that we can walk in the newness of his life, his life, which we are joined to. So does that mean that our union with Christ implies that we'll never commit another sin? I mean, if we're really joined to Him, we'll never commit another sin. Is that what it means? Hardly. But what then is the practical effect of a believer's union with Christ? What, what, what's fair to expect here? What is the effect of union with Christ well I, I don 't believe that Paul is implying perfection he's not saying that once you've experienced new birth, you will never sin again. what, what he's dis- addressing in this situation is a, it, it's a distorted mindset that makes a claim. It makes the claim that it's possible, <laughs> it's possible to sin for the glory of God. <laughs> that might seem silly, but you know, there is a logic to it. Here, here's the logic. I think it goes something like this. You know, God's mercy... God's mercy is the crown jewel of all of God's attributes. It's just the pinnacle. It's the summit, if you will. And so when God pardons sinners on the basis of unmerited grace, He puts that mercy on display. It is glory. Glory to God. Mercy. Wow! That's a good thing. And therefore, this is how the logic goes the the more sin that happens, well, the more mercy is displayed. And of course, the more mercy displayed, the more glory God gets. Therefore, keep on sinning. I mean, keep that glory train just going, stoke the fire. (laughs) Glory to God, I'm sinning. And it's to this mindset that Paul says in verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Live in it, live in it. And and here I I believe that living in it, that that corresponds to what verse 1 says, Where Paul writes, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Living in it, continuing in it. The logic of verses 1 and 2 is that when you're joined to Jesus in his death, you cannot go on with an unchallenged, unchanged pattern of sin in your life. Living in it. Continuing in it. No, no, no. Yeah, That's impossible. How can it be impossible? Why can't it go on? And in verse 6, Paul says, It's because our old self was crucified with Him. We're joined to Him. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. clearly it's possible for true believers to fall into sinful attitudes and actions but listen without that sin ruling us that's what this is what paul's trying to clear up it's, it's this living in. It's this continuing in sin. It's this being under the dominion of sinning. If you're joined to Jesus, it's, it's, that's just not logical. <laughs> so so, so that, that kind of thinking, sinning for the glory of God, we, we need to dispel that crazy notion. Romans 6:14 says, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Now, now that is an encouraging reality. In, in union with Jesus, the believer has real, actual, functional freedom from enslavement to sin. It is no longer necessary. It's a a great phrase. Lock that in. It is no longer necessary that sin be controlling you like a slave master. You died. You're joined to Jesus in his death. What he achieved is your achievement. It's not necessary that you do that. Over and over and over and over and over every day. You're joined to Jesus. It's not necessary for you to keep on and keep on and keep on sinning like that. In union with Christ's death on the cross for your sins, you're not a slave to sinning anymore. Continuing in sin, living in sin is not necessary. It's not necessary. Tell each other that in your discipleship huddle. (laughs) When like for the sixth year in a row, just keep coming back to that same one again and again. It's not necessary. Do you know that? It's not necessary. You're joined to Jesus. (laughs) So, how can we live in the good of this? And, and, and we're going we're gonna to stay with this text again next week, so we'll give it a little bit more time to percolate and simmer and whatnot to get things done in us. But for now, how is it that we can live in the good of Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14? And I believe it, it's probably obvious, but the first step is to know the truth. We need to know what's true about us. We need to know what's false. In verse 3, Paul says, Do you not know? Do you not know? You all know this. All of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Verse 6, We know. We know this. We know that our old self was crucified with him, by faith, when he died, it's as if we died. So that we no longer, we would no longer be enslaved to doing the same thing again and again and again. Keep doing that. No control. Living in the reality of freedom from enslaving sins is, first of all, a matter of knowing something. It is gospel doctrine making some sense to us. Verse 9, we know (laughs) that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Death no longer has dominion over anyone that's joined to him. We know. So we're going to come back to that verse especially next week. But for now, it's it's just important to know what to know. And know it. That we're joined to Christ in, in the effect of his death over sin and the effect of his resurrection in empowering us to walk in newness of life. Once we know that Christ's death and Christ's life became ours and know that we died with Him and that we lived with Him, it's really only then that we can successfully make this break from actual enslavement to sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning the same sinnings over and over and over. So know this truth. But here's the second part. Count it... Namely, this truth. Count it to be true. <laughs> so, I mean, here, here's the distinction. It, it's it's one thing to be informed. It's another thing to be transformed, right? It, it, it's not simply a matter of information. It's not simply, wow, there's a, there's a com- compelling concept. Wow, how fascinating! Ooh, wow, and we study that, you know. And um, but verse eleven says. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in union with Christ Jesus. Consider this to be true. Count it to be true. Entrust yourself to it. These truths are not merely informational. They are intended to be transformational. They are intended to get things done. The gospel is meant to function. So know it. And then entrust yourselves to it and apply it and pray it and soak in it. It's only when we understand what it truly means to be justified, just as if I'd never sinned, just as if I'd always obeyed. That, that's such a powerful truth. It's only by knowing that and then and only then can we make any progress in this process of. Practical holiness, of it actually being true in our lives. It's only when we understand that we've been declared righteous by God that we can have any hope in the process of being made righteous. But then once you understand it, understand what our standing is before God, namely holy, righteous, above reproach, it's then that we can enter successfully into the process of becoming what we already are. So that, that's what that's the whole meaning of that big word sanctification, right? It's the process whereby sanctification is the process whereby we become what we already are. Righteous, holy before God. Here's how one of our respected friends puts it. We can only kill the sin that has already been killed when we were killed in Christ. Let me say that again. We we can only kill the sin that has already been killed when we were killed in Christ. Or to put it positively, we can only achieve practical righteousness as a working out of the imputed righteousness. Righteousness. The battle of sanctification is to become what we are in Christ, namely righteous with the imputed righteousness of Christ. So there's a connection between knowing and applying and trusting and this truth functioning in our lives. Here's a third means, I think, which is helpful for us practically according to the text. The next next thing is to offer ourselves to God. Offer yourself to God. We we have a choice to make. We've got many choices to make every day. We may offer the parts of our body to God for use in righteousness, or we can offer the parts of our body to God for Unrighteousness, wickedness. According to verse 13, Paul says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer yourself to God as one who is joined to Jesus. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So, you know, we got brains and we got tongues and we got eyes and other body parts and whatnot. And and in and of themselves, you know, they're, they're essentially morally neutral. But the way in which we choose to utilize these body parts determines whether we honor the Lord or grieve the Lord. So so sinful habits, these living in sin, this continuing in sin, these, these habits, these patterns, they don't develop overnight, do they? And rarely are they changed overnight. Only through persistent application of God's truth can they be overcome. I'm going to read you a quote from J. Adams, I think, I think this is wisdom for us to consider. Practical wisdom. He says too many Christians give up. They want the change too soon. I, I, I identify with that. I mean, that may not. Maybe you're just way more patient and persistent and <laughs> plodding. I, I, I tend not to be that way. So I, I, I can locate myself in wanting the change too soon. What they really want is change without the daily struggle. Sometimes they give up when they are on the very threshold of success. They stop before receiving. It usually takes at least three weeks of proper daily effort for one to feel comfortable in performing a new practice, no matter what that might be. And it takes about three more weeks to make the practice part of oneself. And yet many Christians do not continue even for three days. If they don't receive instant success, they get discouraged. They want what they want now. If they don't get it now, they quit. So Paul's, Paul's helping two, two groups of people, right? The, the ones that are discouraged... I'm never going to get over this. Um, And he's also addressing those that have gotten comfortable with sort of justifying it. I'll sin to the glory of God. But through our union with Christ, the truth is, is that we have died to the penalty and the power of sin. His crucified body has atoned for our guilt it has, that word that we've used before, propitiated. It's propitiated. It's satisfied God's wrath. His resurrection body is our promise of victory. Our union with Christ is the basis for our deliverance from bondage to sin. It is it's as immovable as it is unmerited. And it is sufficient as it is certain. So if we know the truth and we count it to be so and then offer ourselves in consistent obedience to God, we'll go from faith to faith and strength to strength and glory to glory. And this is our hope. And so let's pray together. So Lord we we can we can hear gospel doctrine we can understand gospel doctrine we can know and agree with gospel doctrine by your by Your power and by Your presence, would You move us from knowing, understanding, believing, to trusting, to relying, taking hold of. Take hold of us, O Lord. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and intensify the work of the gospel in our lives, this making us holy. Intensify this work which we cannot fulfill apart from you. Trying harder doesn't get us very far. But when your dynamic activity, your empowering presence comes, we're divinely helped. So that we can work out our salvation with fear and trembling as you impart to us the will and the faith, and the steps of obedience. And so we pray that you would show your strength so that these glorious gospel doctrines actually function among your people. Lord, I want to pray now. It just comes to my mind. I want to pray for those who who live in and continue in lack of self-control. Pray for those who live in and continue in bitterness and unforgiveness and resentment. Pray for those who live in and continue in attitudes that, that can be hidden, but still come out in sideways ways, inappropriate ways, hurtful ways at times. Pray for you to show your strength that 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 is an enslavement that is not necessary for those who are joined to Jesus. Pray for other sin patterns like caving into lust, which probably would be one of the first ones that comes to our mind. Lord, Lord let, that be, let that be, let this be a people. Let this be a church and a spiritual community where the flock is, is not characterized by habitual patterned sins like that, but that we are increasingly experiencing the powerful functioning of gospel truth in our lives. So we're going to pray, Lord together now in song and ask that you would answer, answer our cry. Deliver us, Lord. Rescue us in our day of trouble, our days of trouble, our times of trouble and when tr- when sin is our trouble hear our cry, O Lord.